Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 253, The Apostle Paul, a Unitarian. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is my presentation of most of a tract written in 1828 called The Apostle Paul, a Unitarian. This was written by Caleb Stetson. He was born in 1793 in Massachusetts, and he was a lifelong Massachusetts resident. He grew up in a family as one of 11 children. Eventually, he went to Harvard University, where he graduated in 1822. He was a classmate there of the famous Ralph Waldo Emerson. And like Emerson, he was a member of the Transcendental Club. He associated with these sort of radical hipsters, including but not limited to Theodore Parker and Henry David Thoreau. He also got involved in popular causes such as abolitionism and temperance, basically crusading against alcohol. Back to the radical friends, clearly he was interested in these ideas. It's not clear to me exactly how much he bought into them. He did go as far as hosting meetings of the Transcendental Club at his own house. The Encyclopedia of Transcendentalism says that after the 1840s, he didn't get involved with a lot of transcendentalist activities. I wonder if, as a Christian minister, he eventually saw that these ideas led in an anti-Christian direction. One would think that by the 1840s, one could see that very clearly. People like Emerson and Parker began life as New England Congregationalist Unitarians and then transmogrified into something else completely different that wasn't really in any meaningful sense Christian. So Caleb Stetson graduates from Harvard in 1822, and a few years later he graduates from their divinity school. 1827 was a big year for him. He got married that year, and also he was ordained as a Congregationalist minister and began to serve as pastor in Medford, Massachusetts. He did that from 1827 till 1848. He and his wife eventually had seven children. From 1848 till 1859, he was pastor of the Second Unitarian Church in South Situate, Massachusetts, which is now called Norwell, Massachusetts. And from 1860 till 1865, he was a minister at East Lexington, Massachusetts. One contemporary describes him as a man whose heart was warm toward every good cause, whose hand was outstretched toward every needy brother. Others described him as a man of wit, learning, and the most genial character. In this tract, he starts off with the portrait of Paul given in the book of Acts, written by Luke. And then he moves on to the letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament. I would say that he focuses on the theme of subordinationism. Jesus has godlike qualities, powers, authority. Yes, but these are given to him by God. Someone who gets those godlike qualities can't himself be the one true God. I've modernized a few words here and there, and I have here left out the last few pages which deal with the letter to the Hebrews. Partly for length, and partly because most scholars now don't think that that's a letter by Paul. If you really want to know what he says about Hebrews, I'll have a link on the blog post for this episode where you can read the whole tract. Here, then, is Caleb Stetson's The Apostle Paul, a Unitarian. I think this tract is compactly and powerfully argued. See what you think. The Apostle Paul, a Unitarian. I kept back nothing that was profitable to you. I have not shunned to declare to you all the counsel of God. These passages exhibit the manly and fearless principles on which Paul acted as a minister of Jesus Christ, the great talents, extended learning, and ardent zeal with which he went forward in the perilous way where duty called him, gave him a claim to the first rank among the inspired apostles of our Savior. We have no doubt that he was eminently faithful to his great trust. We may receive his testimony respecting the character and office of Jesus Christ with entire confidence that it could not have been erroneous or defective in any important respect. There are two senses in which Christ is said to be divine. One class of Christians believe that he is the eternal, self-existent God, 
that he whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world is the same being who sent him, that he who had all power given him in heaven and on earth is the same God who gave him that power. Another class of Christians, called Unitarians, believe in Jesus not as the supreme God, but as one whom God has highly exalted and made prince and a savior, head over all things to the church. They call him a divine messenger, but it is a divinity derived from God. His precepts were the precepts of God, his wisdom the wisdom of God, his power the power of God. The Unitarian, then, believes in Jesus Christ as a subordinate agent or representative of God, invested by him with divine wisdom and power to save and bless mankind. It is our object to show that Paul's views of our Savior correspond with this statement, or in other words, that he was a Unitarian. And for this purpose, it is necessary to review his preaching and his writings. Let us examine his preaching as we find it recorded by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles. At that time, the Gospels containing our Savior's history were not written. It was necessary, therefore, for preachers to relate this history and inform their hearers distinctly who Jesus was, what he was, and what he had done and taught and suffered for man's salvation. Paul professes to disclose the whole truth and keep back nothing profitable. If, therefore, the supreme divinity of Jesus Christ is not formally stated in his preaching, there is a strong presumption that he did not believe it. But we need not rest on this presumption alone. It will be easy to show positive evidence that he regarded him as a subordinate agent. This apostle says he became all things to all men, or, in modern phrase, he accommodated his instructions to the condition and prejudices of the people whom he addressed. He addressed the Jews as a nation acquainted with the one true God. They had long believed from their ancient prophets that God would send a messenger for their deliverance, called the Messiah, or anointed. But they had mistaken the meaning of the promises to which they trusted. They expected a prince in the pomp of earthly power to wear an earthly crown and deliver them not from moral ruin and death, but from the yoke of the Romans, their foreign masters. They would gladly have welcomed Jesus as the Messiah if he had promised to drive out his country's proud oppressors, raise the banner of independence, and reestablish the throne of David in its long-departed grandeur. But they would not receive, as the messenger of God, him who had refused to be their king and blasted their fondest hopes. They rejected with bitter scorn the meek and lowly Jesus, whose kingdom was not of this world. They were still less likely to admit his claims after he had suffered an ignominious death. It was necessary, therefore, for the apostle, when he preached to Jews, to accommodate his arguments to their unique state of mind. He explained to them the spiritual nature and design of our Savior's office, and proved from their sacred books that this very Jesus whom they had crucified was no other than the promised Messiah. His first preaching recorded in Acts 9 was delivered solely to this point. At Damascus, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God, or the Messiah. Again, he confounded the Jews which dwelled at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ, that is, the true Messiah whom they expected. His next discourse to the Jews, of which we have any record, was at Antioch. He had the same object in view as before, and the author, Luke, gives an account of his method and course of argument. After the reading of the scriptures, he addressed them as the chosen people of God, gives a sketch of their history to show his unique care of their nation down to the time of David. Then he says, Of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. He then proceeds with the history of Jesus comparing it with the ancient scriptures to prove that he is the Messiah. When they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead is proved and powerfully urged as a conclusive evidence that he was the Messiah, long expected by the Jewish nation. He finally adds, 
Be it known to you, therefore, men and brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified. Believe what? That Christ is God? Nothing like it, but only the doctrine he has been teaching them, which, free as it is from Trinitarianism, he himself called the word of salvation. Such as we have stated was the train of reasoning which, as far as we are informed, Paul always employed in preaching the gospel to the Israelites. It went to prove the simple proposition that Jesus was the Messiah, or what means the same thing in the Greek language, the Christ. Having embraced this great truth, they were Christians in faith. It remained only for them to become so in practical obedience to the gospel. It is necessary now to consider what idea a Jew must have had of the Messiah after Paul had thus explained his character and office and proved from the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth was he. I have already stated the well-known fact that this people had expected in him a temporal prince and deliverer. After the apostle had exposed this error, what new idea did they form of him? This may be easily answered. The term Messiah, or Christ, literally means the anointed. It originated in an ancient practice of anointing with oil, one who is set apart or consecrated to an office. Now it is perfectly well known that the Jews supposed their expected deliverer, whom they called, by way of eminence, the Messiah, would receive and fulfill his high office under the authority of Jehovah. They looked forward to him as God's most distinguished messenger to them, They invested him with high titles as the Son of God, but no Jew ever for a moment supposed that the Most High himself would come down to earth in human form as the Messiah. When the Apostle therefore proved to them that they were not to expect a temporal prince but a spiritual one, and that Jesus of Nazareth was the true and long-expected Messiah, they could have received him only as a messenger or agent of God, not as the ever-living Jehovah whom they had worshipped in the Holy of Holies. Paul knew that the Jewish converts to Christianity must regard our Savior only as an agent, deriving his power and dignity from God, and he gives them no intimation that they were in an error. To the contrary, we find him testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks that he had kept nothing back that was profitable to them, nor shunned to declare all the counsel of God. But how could this be true if he had been commissioned to preach the doctrine of the Trinity? Would any Trinitarian preacher have thought that he had declared all the counsel of God if he had failed to inform his hearers that Jesus Christ was no other than God himself? But Paul gives no intimation of such a doctrine. All he says is directly against this. He aims merely to establish two points. First, that Jesus, whom they had crucified, was the promised Messiah. And second, that God had raised him from the dead by his own power. He reasons with the Jews on their own received opinions. His argument is as follows. You already believe from your sacred writings that God will qualify and send for you deliverance, a person called the Messiah, who will be obedient to his will and as his representative accomplish his purposes of mercy. Now, if you compare these promises on which you rely with the life, character, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who was crucified at Jerusalem, you will be convinced that he is the true Messiah. He was no imposter, for God raised him from the dead. He did not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. Now, had the Jews admitted fully all that Paul had told them, they were obviously as far as ever from believing that Jesus was the supreme God. The apostle knew that this must be the case, and yet he is willing to leave them in this state of mind. He not only does not tell them of our Savior's underived divinity, but all he does say is adapted to confirm them in the opposite belief. It is then certain either that the inspired apostle did not believe that Jesus was God, or that he did not consider it profitable to state it to his hearers. If you choose the former alternative, you will of course adopt his opinions. If you prefer the latter, we may ask why many Christian ministers are now reviled and denounced for not preaching a doctrine which Paul did not think profitable. As the same remarks may be applied to all his preaching to the Jews, we will next examine his mode of addressing Gentiles, or heathens. 
He had been preaching to the Jews in Athens when his doctrines excited the attention and curiosity of some philosophers of that city. We notice a curious mistake of these idolaters. They heard Paul preaching to the Jews, and some of them supposed that he was proclaiming two new deities, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. To gratify their love of novelty, they conducted him to Mars Hill, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is that you're talking about? He then proceeds to give them a full exposition of Christian truth. Indeed, no faithful minister of the gospel could have neglected an opportunity so favorable. We may remark that his reasoning differs considerably from that which he thought proper to address to the Jews. He could not prove to these heathens from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah whom God was to sanctify and send into the world, for they knew nothing of the scriptures, nor of the one God whom they revealed. He was obligated to address them on principles of natural religion. He even quotes one of their own poets to support his argument, for we are also his offspring. Having proved the existence of one eternal God, creator, ruler, father of the universe, he proceeds to make a moral use of this great truth. He proclaims the certain judgment of a future life as confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He does not tell these idolaters that the supreme deity whose existence he has been proving assumed a human form and came into the world to be its redeemer, sovereign, and judge. No, his doctrine is as different as possible from this. He tells them that God overlooked the conduct of men when in darkness and ignorance, but now has commanded all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance, inasmuch as he has raised him from the dead. This discourse on Mars Hill must be considered as exhibiting Paul's views of the important doctrines of Christianity because it was delivered to the Athenians at their express request for full information. And he could not fail to give them this information without gross unfaithfulness to the cause for which he was ever ready to encounter peril, suffering, and death. We shall see what he really taught on this occasion and how perfectly it accords with Unitarian preaching. He enforced the following great practical truths. First, that there is one only true God, creator and ruler of all things. Second, that this God now calls all men everywhere to repentance or reformation, because, third, there is a future life of retribution and God has appointed a day of judgment for the world. Fourth, he has ordained a man and given him power and wisdom to judge in righteousness or justice. And fifth, he has raised this agent from the dead to prove beyond a doubt that he had a divine commission. These five propositions embody the whole substance of the Apostle's sermon to the Athenians. The doctrine is pure Unitarianism. It is obviously impossible that his hearers could have inferred from this discourse that Jesus, whom God had ordained and whom he had raised from the dead, was that God himself. The same remarks may be applied to every instance of his preaching as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. The whole tenor of his discourse is to give glory to Jesus Christ as one whom God had highly exalted, but not a hint is given that he believed him to be God himself. The only apparent exception to this remark is found in Acts 20:28. 20, Feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. There is a mistake in the King James Version. By recurring to Griesbach's Greek Testament, which is received as the best authority both by Trinitarians and Unitarians, it will be seen that the word God is not found in the original. It should read, To feed the church of the Lord, a common title of our Savior as head of the church. It may perhaps be said that as we have only a part of Paul's preaching handed down to us, we are not authorized to infer with certainty that he was a Unitarian preacher. To this we may answer, we can judge of his views only by what we have. What is lost can prove nothing. This is believed to be fair reasoning. We gather the opinions of Dwight or Buckminster from what remains of their discourses. Our Trinitarian brothers call every preacher a Unitarian if he does not distinctly avow his belief in the supreme, underived divinity of Jesus Christ. 
They will not allow that any faithful minister could omit this doctrine in an exhibition of Christian truth. We reason in the same way in this case. We have shown several occasions in which the inspired apostle would have felt himself obliged to declare that Jesus was the living God had he believed him to be so. We appeal to his own powerful and impassioned descriptions of our Savior when it was his object to exalt him in the estimation of his hearers. He professes to declare the whole counsel of God to fully explain the character and office of Jesus Yet his highest praise is that he is the Messiah, whom God has appointed to judge the world in righteousness, whom he has raised from the dead, made him sit at his right hand, and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, how is this reserve to be accounted for? If he did not preach Christ's supreme divinity to Jews who had never thought of him as God, nor to Gentiles who had never thought of him at all, to whom should he have preached it? To whom should it ever be preached if so many different times and occasions could not call it forth from this bold and powerful champion of the cross? It is to God, the Father of the universe, and to Him only that the Apostle ascribes supreme and underived divinity. It is the reflected luster of this divinity that shines in the face of His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. The Father reigns on the throne of the universe, unrivaled and alone, and from this eternal and fathomless fountain, emanations of light and wisdom and power have descended without measure upon this chosen representative, so that in him dwells the fullness of the divinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Stetson moves from Paul's preaching as presented in Acts to Paul's writings in the New Testament. Having shown that Paul was a Unitarian in his preaching, we have reason for supposing that he was so in his writings. To prove this, it will be necessary to take a brief notice of each epistle. It will not be denied that this is a work of some difficulty, for even Peter says there are things in his brother Paul's writings hard to be understood. The plain, unequivocal proofs, however, that he was a Unitarian are so very numerous that the chief difficulty consists in making such a selection as can be reduced within proper limits. In the second chapter of Romans, we find the following passage. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The apostle here refers all judgment to God through the agency of his Son. Compare this testimony with that of our Savior himself. The Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. If God has committed all judgment to the Son, it is obvious that the Son himself had not eternal and underived power of judging, therefore he is not the omnipotent God. God has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once, but in that he lives, he lives to God. The apostle here wishes to inspire confidence in the Savior by showing that his life and divine commission are beyond the power of death because he lives to God, because his life is devoted to the purposes of God or is sustained by the power of God. He could not have used this argument if he had believed Christ to be the everlasting, self-existent God, for it plainly denies self-existence. He would have said death has no dominion over him because he is Jehovah who cannot die. Compare this with our Savior's own assertions, as the Father has life in himself, so he has given to the Son to have life in himself. If this assertion does not mean that God only is self-existent and Christ derived his being from God, I see not that any explanation of it can be given. 
But it is not from a few texts only that Paul is proved to have written to the Romans as a Unitarian. Evidence of the fact presents itself on every page of this epistle. Such expressions as the following need no comment. I thank my God through Jesus Christ, Romans 1.8. Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth, Romans 3.25. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1. The grace of God, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, verse 15. Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, 6.4. Alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, 6.11. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, 6.23. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, 7.25. God sending his own Son, etc., 8.3. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. 8.11 We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 8.17 Christ that died, yes, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. 8.34 That you may glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 15.6 To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. 1627 In the epistles to the Corinthians, we find the following testimonies. Of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And God has both raised up the Lord, Jesus, and will also raise us up at the last day by his own power. Is it possible that St. Paul could have made these assertions if he had believed Christ to be the omnipotent God? Here are three propositions, all false, unless he is a dependent being. First, God made him wisdom, etc. Therefore, these are not inherent attributes. Second, Christ belongs to God. He is his subject, his property, therefore not himself supreme. Third, God raised him from the dead by his own power in the same manner as he will raise us. Therefore, Jesus is dependent on God for life itself. If further testimonies were needed, we might quote many such passages as the following. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.4 The head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. 11.8 We have testified of God that he raised up Christ. 15.15 Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Thanks be to God, who always causes us to triumph in Christ. 2.14 All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. 5.18 Though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. 8.4 Such is the Apostle's usual manner of distinguishing between God and Jesus Christ. The following passage is important in this inquiry for two reasons. And there is no other God but one. For though there be so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be many gods and many lords, but for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. This shows that the term God is applied to beings inferior to Jehovah, but this is not all. If language has any meaning, it proves that God is one being and Jesus Christ another being distinct from him. It also asserts that we are to regard God as the ultimate source from whom all things flow, and Jesus Christ as the agent or channel of his favor through whom all things flow. The next passage which I shall quote is absolutely decisive of this question. Then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. 
for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he, God, is accepted who did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued to him, then shall the subject also himself be subject unto him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This can scarcely require a comment. Here are two plain, direct assertions, each sufficient to prove that Paul regarded our Savior as a subordinate agent. First, God put all things under him, that is, Jesus acted with delegated power. Second, the time is coming when he is to give up this delegated power. I am not aware of any argument which can render it credible that the Apostle should apply this language to Jehovah, whose dominion endures forever. Let the Trinitarian seriously ask himself if he is not in a great error. If Jesus is the Almighty God, does he believe that he will ever give up his power and become a subject? We come next to the Epistle to the Galatians. There is not a single word in it that favors the doctrine of Christ's supreme divinity. This is a remarkable fact if the Apostle was a Trinitarian. But more than this, there are several expressions in the Epistle which are utterly inconsistent with the belief that Jesus Christ is God. Of this character is the first verse, in which Jesus is said to have been raised from the dead by God the Father. In the fourth verse, he is represented as having given himself for our sins according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever. The seventh verse of the fourth chapter affirms of the Christian that he is an heir of God through Christ. Thus, our Savior is uniformly spoken of as subordinate to God the Father. One other specimen from this epistle will suffice. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Angel is synonymous with messenger, and Paul indirectly assigns that term to Jesus Christ. He certainly does not mean to say, you received me as you would receive God, but you received me as the authorized ambassador of God, as Jesus Christ who came to reveal his will and accomplish his designs. When the Trinity's podcast returns, our author moves on to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The epistle to the Ephesians is still more explicit. We cannot doubt that it was written by a Unitarian. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above every principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Let us look distinctly at the several propositions contained in this statement, and we shall find that Paul could not have regarded our Savior as the supreme God. First, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, by his own power, raised him from the dead. Second, he set him at his right hand, above all other created powers. Third, he put all things under him and made him head over all things to the church. Thus he ascribes everything to God and nothing to Jesus as an independent being. Now either the apostle did not believe him to be Jehovah, or these three propositions are utterly false. They cannot be explained away on any correct principle of interpretation. They are not stated once and heedlessly, but deliberately and often. While there is not a single sentence in the whole epistle that contradicts them, they find more or less support in every chapter. For instance, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.3. Through him, that is Christ, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father, 2.18. For this cause I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 3.14. One Lord, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all, 4, 5, and 6. Giving thanks always for all things to God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 5.20 Who may dare, in view of such declarations, to affirm that Paul did not write to the Ephesians as a Unitarian? The epistle to the Philippians bears the same testimony. Would a writer who believed Jesus Christ to be God express himself as Paul has done in the following passages? The fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1.11 For we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ. 3.3 3. My God shall support all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 4.19 and 20 Such is the current language of this epistle. It will not be pretended that there is more than one passage which even seems to have a contradictory import. We allude to the Apostle's assertion that our Savior thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This has been considered a decisive proof of the deity of Christ. We shall show that taken according to the true meaning of the original and in connection with the context, It is so far from affording any support to this doctrine that it is an unanswerable argument in favor of Unitarian views of the subject. The whole passage follows. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." This passage we maintain, taken together, plainly disproves the deity of Christ. This will appear if we particularly attend to the separate propositions. First, he was in the form of God. This means either that he was similar to God, God like, as being a divine messenger, or that he was the visible representative of God on earth. It is, in either case, equivalent to the image of the invisible God. Therefore, a being distinct from God. Second, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. If Jesus Christ were God himself, he would not be capable of being exalted. He would by his own nature be above all creatures. If he were the supreme Jehovah, would it be true that God has given him a name above every name? Was he not eternally and independently above all other beings? Would Paul have thought it proper to refer his exaltation to God's favor? But what is more remarkable, third, God is said to have exalted him as a reward for his obedience. He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him, etc. Jesus Christ then could be rewarded. As we are told in another place that, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, etc. Fourth, consider also the end for which God is said to have exalted him above all his creatures. Was it that they might give the glory to Jesus as God? No, the apostle says otherwise. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No evidence could be more positive that Paul regarded our Savior, in his highest exaltation, as wholly dependent on God for his dignity and power. How, then, it will be asked, could Paul say of him that 
He thought it not robbery to be equal with God? We answer that Paul did not say this. His words in the original Greek do not necessarily convey any such meaning. The passage is incorrectly translated. This last remark is admitted to be true by Trinitarians themselves. We have the original before us and perceive that the word rendered in our common version equal might at least as properly be translated like. It is often used to denote mere resemblance both in the scriptures and in the classics. And as to the phrase, he thought it not robbery, we have the import of the original more exactly in the words, he thought it not a thing to be eagerly retained. Accordingly, the passage may be correctly translated thus, who being in the form of God, did not think this likeness to God a thing to be eagerly retained, but humbled himself, etc. We now see the relevancy of the apostle's argument which was to enforce the duty of humility and benevolence by proposing the example of Christ. But to say that our Savior thought it not robbery to be equal with God could serve only to encourage an opposite spirit. We perceive also a perfect agreement of this passage with the context, as well as with St. Paul's other writings, whereas according to the common version it is at variance with them both. Besides, on the Trinitarian supposition that the Apostle meant by these words to affirm that Christ is God, how can he be vindicated from the absurdity of saying of a being that he thought it not robbery to be equal with himself? We are certain, therefore, from the whole passage that St. Paul regarded our Savior as an agent dependent on God for his power and glory. The epistle to the Colossians begins with Paul's assertion that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In verse 12 of the first chapter, he gives thanks to the Father who has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Then follows a glowing description of the true Messiah. It is the apostle's purpose to exalt him as an object of confidence and veneration. If then he had believed him to be God, he must have stated this conviction as the proper ground of reverence. He would not have represented, as he has done, the high claims of Jesus as founded entirely on what God has done for him. Our Savior is described in the fervent eloquences of St. Paul as the agent of God's power, head of the church, firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus then, according to this representation, was not God. He did not naturally and of himself have the preeminence, but it was bestowed on him because it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Christ is said to have done or created all things by power delegated from God. It is evident then that he was not the supreme creator, but there is some doubt what the apostle means by his having done or made all things. Some suppose that he existed in glory before the foundation of the world and was the agent employed by God in the creation and support of all things in the material universe. Others offer good reasons for believing that the phrase all things should be limited to all things done by the gospel dispensation for the spiritual new creation or moral renovation of mankind. Examples are found of such limitations of general or universal propositions. The following is exactly to the purpose. St. John, addressing Christians, says to them, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. The writer obviously means that they know all things which Christians ought to know. So St. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Our present inquiry, however, does not call for the discussion of this question. Whatever opinion is adopted, it is still equally clear that St. Paul did not consider our Savior as having underived power. For he speaks of God who raised him from the dead, Colossians 2.12. He represents Christ not as supreme, but as sitting at the right hand of God, 3.1. He implies the inferiority of the Son to the Father in his injunction to Christians to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by him, 3.17. When he approaches nearest to attributing to Christ the perfections of deity, he refers to the Father as the source of all. Let the reader compare the following texts, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This is the doctrine of St. Paul. The blessed Savior is not a common man, as some philosophers have asserted. He is the Son and Messenger of God, with divine wisdom and power, for in him dwells all the fullness of the divinity. He is not the supreme God, as some Christians believe, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This conclusion is placed beyond a doubt by the following. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, or of all creatures? I have before explained the phrase, image of the invisible God, as necessarily signifying a being distinct from God, the visible representative of his power and perfections on earth. The firstborn of all creatures, this obviously places him first among created beings, but still one of them who derived his being from God. Whether this means first in time or first in dignity or both does not at all concern the present inquiry. In either sense, the passage cannot be reconciled with the eternal, underived divinity of him who is called a creature by the inspired apostle. When the Trinity's podcast returns, our author finishes up his case. The two epistles to the Thessalonians so fully authorize the same conclusion that we need to notice only a single passage from each epistle to show that the apostle speaks of God and Jesus as beings distinct from each other, not only while Christ was on earth, but after his ascension. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The epistles to Timothy were charges to a minister whom St. Paul was particularly anxious to instruct as to rightly dividing the word of truth. Let us observe some specimens of what he deemed to be this word of truth. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Was it to Jesus Christ that this ascription was made? Let the following passage afford an answer. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Again, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things. Is not the Lord Jesus here represented as a distinct witness of conduct as well as the angels? If then he is not a distinct being from God, what can this mean? Further, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Christ, therefore, not being the original source of our salvation, is inferior to God. Once more, if we suffer with him, that is Christ, we shall also reign with him. Suffer with him, reign with him. It would be impious for mere human beings to assert this of themselves in relation to one whom they regarded as the supreme God. The epistle to Titus was also a charge to a minister whom the writer exhorted to adhere to sound doctrine. Does Paul address him in the manner of a Trinitarian? Far from it. He is careful to distinguish between God and Christ as two beings looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. The title, Great God, 
is never applied to Jesus Christ in the scriptures, but frequently to the Father and to him alone. Again, God our Savior, according to his own mercy, saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he had shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is then the sound doctrine of St. Paul. The great God is our Savior as the eternal source of mercy and love, and Jesus Christ is our Savior in a subordinate sense, as the organ or channel through which this mercy flows to man. The epistle to Philemon, about a slave who had been converted to Christianity by the preaching of Paul at Rome, contains nothing which relates to the subject of our present remarks. We have now carefully examined the writings of Paul and find that they correspond with his preaching. They uniformly represent our Savior as the anointed messenger of God, exalted by him to be a prince and a savior, but never as God himself. It remains to consider what may be said against this conclusion. There are two passages which require explanation as they seem to contradict the general tenor of the Apostles' writings. We shall find, however, that there is no real inconsistency. We meet with one difficulty in the Epistle to the Romans. This is Romans 9, 3, 4, and 5. My kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is, over all, God blessed forever. A very slight addition, authorized by the original Greek, removes this difficulty and renders the passage consistent with the rest of the epistle. It might read, God be blessed forever. St. Paul is here expressing his solicitude for his countrymen, and he relates God's providence and special care over them, mentions the old and new covenants, and the promises made to the fathers. To this chosen nation, he says, belong the fathers from whom Christ descended, who is above all, over all, or better than all these other dispensations and persons, God be blessed forever. This last clause, accordingly, is nothing more than a natural expression of gratitude to God for his best gift to man, as he exclaims in another place, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. By adopting a different punctuation, however, which we are at liberty to do, since that of the common translation is of no authority, we may have, perhaps, a still more satisfactory interpretation of the passage. We may place a longer pause after the words, Christ came. Then, by substituting in the translation, he who, for who, which the original admits of, and inserting a comma after God, we can translate the passage in this way. And of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, he who is over all, God, be blessed forever. Or, by a freer version, the full meaning of the Apostle, according to the opinion of some, may be given as follows. Of whom was Christ according to the flesh? He who is over all, being God-blessed forever. Whichever construction be preferred, the Trinitarian way of explaining the passage we must think false, since, besides other objections to it, it is a fact that those early fathers of the Church who entertained the highest notions of the Savior's character and who, it must be supposed, understood the Greek language, never applied to Christ, even when most desirous to exalt him, the title of God over all, blessed forever. The only other difficulty of this kind is found in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Even as the present version stands, the difficulty is only apparent. The second clause is a figurative expression equivalent to Emmanuel, God is with us. In this sense, we all believe that God was present, manifest to the world in his Son and Ambassador Jesus Christ. It means no more than that. It means no more than that he is the image of the invisible God the brightness of his Father's glory and the express image of his person, and is equivalent to other expressions which mean the visible representative of God on earth. 
But we ought not to be satisfied with the common translation of this text, for it is founded on an erroneous reading of the original. The true reading is, Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifest in the flesh was justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. This is perfectly intelligible. The word God is not found in the original manuscripts, but has been designedly or accidentally introduced into the text. It is a triumphant exclamation of the Apostle, Great is the mystery of man's regeneration from sin to holiness by the gospel. He who lived among us in a human form, the representative of the divine character, and the messenger of the divine will, having accomplished the purposes of his mission, was received up by God into the bosom of his glory. We all believe, and we rejoice in believing this sublime truth. For if Christ is not risen, says Paul, then our faith is in vain, and your hope is in vain. Our purpose is now accomplished. We have examined the thirteen epistles of Paul, and have found them to bear positive evidence that he regarded our Savior as an agent who derived all his power and wisdom from God. In eleven of these epistles, and all his preaching, we do not find the least intimation that Jesus Christ is the self-existent Jehovah, and what can be opposed to this overpowering evidence. The whole opposite argument rests on one equivocal text in Romans and another in Timothy, both of which we have seen can be easily explained in harmony with the general tenor and spirit of his writings. The whole opposite argument rests on one equivocal text in Romans and another in Timothy, both of which we have seen can be easily explained in harmony with the general tenor and spirit of his writings. If, then, we are ready to adopt the opinions of this eminent and inspired ambassador of Christ, whose writings and discourses occupy one-third of the New Testament, we shall believe on our Savior, not as a mere man, undertaking the reformation of the world with human genius and human power, we shall receive him as a divine teacher and master. We shall trust in him as God's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased, whom he has made the head of the church, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, in the gospel dispensation, his best gift to save and bless our lost race. We are told that Unitarianism would deprive us of our Savior, but it is not so. To us there is one God and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom living streams of light and truth and salvation have flowed and shall forever flow from the eternal and exhaustless fountain of mercy. The great apostle of the Gentiles, in his triumphant visions of inspiration, wanted no higher assurance than that God had raised him from the dead. He would not dim the glory of Jehovah's throne by interposing another object of supreme homage. And shall not we be satisfied with such a Savior on whom God's Spirit descended without measure? The moral perfections of deity reflected in him are pledged to fulfill his promises. The hopes of the gospel are firm as the throne of heaven, for God himself has laid their deep foundations, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. This week's thinking music is the track Paper Planes by Durden, featuring Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you.
Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.